Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A huge explosion of fire for John Forrest. The car exploded going through the lights and this is as bad a fire as we On this episode, it's NHRA Insider's Tony Pedragon and Phil Burgess of National Dragster. It's going to be Tim Wilkerson. Wilkerson goes 391-2. We're going to recap the preseason testing, who looked good, who needs help, and who is going to win Pomona. Perfect reaction time for Dallas Glenn. Triple zeros across the top of the time slip. And at the finish line stripe, it's Dallas Glenn. It's time to go racing in 22. It's Bruce Pedragon, 395.8, 324 miles an hour. It marks a victory of 26 ten thousandths of a second. Hey, everybody, it's Brian Loans, and we are finally going racing this week. The preseason is over. The offseason is over. The real season begins on Thursday with sportsman qualifying runs being made at Auto Club Raceway Pomona for the 2022 NHRA Lucas Oil Winter Nationals presented by Protect the Harvest. Fired up? Yes, I am. Fired up like crazy. Had a great weekend experience in Phoenix. Got a little bit of a sunburn, which was a welcome change of uh, atmosphere and, uh, and weather than what we're used to here in the East Coast at this time of the year. And really got impressed, educated, and um, overall just kind of just kind of got the lay of the land of, of the, the massively different landscape that presents itself to us for this 2022 NHRA Camping World Drag Racing Series season. Um, spoke to loads of crew chiefs, loads of drivers, loads of crew guys, team owners, really kind of uh, spent a few days just working and walking through the pits and, and trying to get uh, a handle on just how much everything has changed out there. Whether it's watching those first runs, initial runs being made by Matt Hagen and Leah Pruitt from the new Tony Stewart Racing uh, two-car team with their Dodge Power Broker sponsorship. Whether it was watching Austin Brock knock some of the rust off and get himself comfortable in a race car with a crew that has been, uh, I want to say hastily assembled, but hastily assembled over the last couple of weeks. Um, so many new faces working on these cars. So many faces wearing, you know, different laundry than they had been wearing over the course of uh, many of the years I've known some of these crew guys. So long time, long term crew people made team uh, switches, um, and I mean, really, they're a, a very small percentage of these teams look the same than they did last year. Um, Alexis's team being one of them, that was very stable. Ron Caps's team being one of them, that was very stable. Uh, it is a very short list of, of Nitro teams we can talk about that have the same people doing the same jobs. Um, even within some of the teams, for instance, uh, on Matt Hagen's Funny Car, Dickie Venables reassigned the guys, kind of shifted their um, shifted some of their jobs around, one, to make them better rounded, and two, to give people some opportunity to, to kind of work their way up through the career ranks and ladder. It is... Uh, and it has been very interesting to watch over the course of the three days. We saw some, you know, rudimentary style mistakes made by some of the teams that are new to working together. And that is why preseason testing exists is to, you know, run through the idea of treating it perhaps like a race day, run through teardowns, run through service. And then, of course, sending the cars down the racetrack. Everybody at this test was there for a reason, whether it was a guy like me who was there to gather information and make sure that my ducks are in a row for when we go on the air at 7 p.m., Pacific time Friday night from Pomona, whether it is for the crew chiefs who have been looking at data and analyzing all winter long, trying to apply those things. And of course, whether it is for the crews themselves who need to execute this work, which is very difficult work that needs to be done very precisely and very quickly in the pits. So uh, it, it was kind of cool to realize that every person in the on the property in Wild Horse Pass Motorsports Park was there for their own specific 
preparation for this season. And um, again, we saw the, the the Capco team we saw come out. I would it's it's tough to say who wins testing, right? How do you win testing? Well, you can't. But if I'm going to pick one team that won testing, it was the Capco team. Um, they they came out made right off the trailer, made a couple of brutally quick runs. I mean, just great early shutoff, you know, high 380, or rather high 360s with the parachutes out, speed off by, you know, 20-some mile an hour, running barely over 300. Um, and and they were done. Thursday and Friday, they made, a, a I believe, two runs a day, and that was that. Um, Steve did double-step the car one run, uh, and that's, you know, again, driver knocking the rust off. But the reality of the situation is that that car came out of the trailer, as good as it always has been, it will be as good as it always has been when it rolls into the gate at Pomona on Friday. And they are one of the few, and I mean the few teams that don't have any question marks sitting next to it when we get to race day. And testing's one thing. We're going to talk to Tony Pedregon today, going to talk to Phil Burgess today as well, and kind of get their final impressions of the offseason, get their final impressions of what they saw in testing. But the difference between going to Arizona and learning your job in a, a pressure-filled but but really one-tenth the pressure of a normal race day environment is, is going to show itself. We're going to see it show itself in positive ways. We're going to see it show itself in negative ways. And so that first round in Pomona is going to show a whole lot about who's most prepared as a driver, which team is most prepared mechanically, which crew chief is most confident in their tune-up. So um, it was really great. Pro stock cars were out there as well, mostly the KB crew, and they were running. Uh, it, majority of runs were made to a thousand feet. Majority of runs were made uh, Friday and Saturday. A handful of the, the pro stock cars were still running on Sunday. Uh, in the nitro funny car category, it is uh, again looking like it's going to start as it finished. Um, Performance wise, the cars were grouped together outside of one guy, and that was John Force. Uh, John Force came up to the starting line on Saturday and ran 383, which was, I believe, or is, I believe, one of the quickest funny car runs made in the last two years. And so that was a statement run. Um, I'm not saying they showed up there and they said, well, we're going to have everybody watch this, but they clearly went up there to throw whatever they could at it and it worked. And so, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like you, you need to have these weapons, if you will. You need to have these, um, these these runs that people know you can make, it's going to change how they race you. And so if they know that car can uncork an 83, well, that, that changes the way your opponent's going to set up, and that may change the way your opponent's going to drive next to you. You know, there's a lot to be said for making that type of a statement run and then doing it cleanly and nodding your head and walking back to the pits with your chin up and, and your confidence up because, frankly, they earned it. Um, many funny cars running in that 380 bracket, 87s, 86s, um, were very impressive to see. And, and you know, Hagen's car with Dickie Venables flying. Uh, Ron Caps's car looking great with, uh, with Guido and John Medlin. Uh, we saw the super bodies out there, and, again, that was really their second uh, – time at the racetrack because of the testing they had done in florida a few weeks ago with jr todd but both jr and alexis looked good alexis like rolled off the trailer and went at 392 early in the test session at like 335 and everyone's like damn okay she's not screwing around and they weren't they had a very solid test session and jr hit punching his car down into the 360s as well was really interesting to talk to both of them to understand the dynamics of uh, how the car changes with that new GR Superbody on it. 
both of them said that they had to um, they and they will continue to refine their down track driving. The car makes way more downforce, meaning it's way more stuck to the track, meaning it is way more responsive to steering inputs. So. Uh, both of them said early on in their in their kind of tenure with this body that they had a little tendency to overdrive because they were you know throwing some pretty significant steering inputs into the car which the old body would have required but the new one does not because of the fact that it's providing more downforce to those front tires and and some more traction or to more tractive force for those tires to grip the drag strip and turn uh you know, it's tough to sum up and and say ten minutes of a monologue exactly what uh, exactly what preseason testing was like or what it felt like. But the, the the last word I think to use here is excitement, and it is not manufactured excitement. It is not uh, false excitement. It is not inflated excitement. It is it is as real as it gets you know somewhere deep down in my bones it, it feels as though we are really on the precipice of something or the precipice i should say of something um game changing for nhra drag racing and and that game changing thing is going to be competition i mean we have 17 top fuel cars coming to pomona which we were hoping for 19 or 20 because we're greedy but there were some things that happened cameron Frey and and empy uh, you know parted ways there were some cars that didn't head west that we expected maybe they would to start the season and they'll pick it up at gainesville uh we have 20 pro stocks on the qualifying sheet we have 20 funny cars on the qualifying sheet and when we look at those cars that are showing up you'll hear both phil burgess and tony talk about this i'm sure it is the sheer, not just the sheer number of cars, because, you know, having a lot of cars is cool, but you have to look at the quality of those cars. Of the 20 cars that are in Nitro Funny Car, um, there's a solid 10 or 12 of them that you can look at and go, I think this guy or girl is probably going to win the race. And, you know, that's what the excitement level of this year is going to be for me, is not simply the fact that we do have more cars, that we do have more full-time cars. It is this elevation of quality of competition we have seen over the last couple of years and yes we have had our fair share of thin races and i'm not saying that those days are completely over we we may end up in the you know far reaches of the northeast or the far reaches of the pacific northwest looking thin on cars or or not as overflowing as we will be at the majority of races but the situation for 2022 versus the situation for 2021 or 2020 is very very different and in all the best of ways so you know i think um and i hope you know i hope that that all of us of of, as nhra fans whether you're somebody who roots on a specific driver simply loves the sport of drag racing i hope all of us have uh had this collective experience where we've been able to weather these storms of the last couple of years and they've been significant storms but you know it's on the other side of a storm is good weather and it sure as hell feels to me like we are headed into some warm, good weather, both figuratively and literally in the sport of NHRA Camping World Drag Racing. And it's going to be, it is going to be a rocket ride this season. And I, I certainly hope everybody is ready for what's coming because uh, <laughs> it's going to look and feel different than it has for the last couple of seasons. And that look and feel of difference is positive in literally every way possible. So that's my rant on testing. I want to get into it with Tony Pedragon first, as he was not at the test, but he was, of course, in close contact with many people that were there, and he was watching it on the live streaming coverage as well. Good. Good morning, Brian. 
So, man, we're uh, we're finally going to get after it. And, you know, to me that the test session kind of lived up to the hype. I mean, we talked about how many cars are going to be there. And I think by the time we got done on Saturday, you know, for better or worse, everybody had kind of left an impression. And, and most of those impressions are pretty strong. I agree, Brian. I think in their own way, you know, I a lot of them we talked about go with a certain strategy. And that strategy is usually to get their crew members in sync. Uh, you know, they simulate some teardowns, some engine services here at the shop, but there's nothing like doing it at the track when you have the trailer set up, the awnings and everything situated. So it's a lot different. And I know the first day we were just anticipating, you know, maybe things to move a little slower. At least I was. Um, and I, you know, all these started dropping bombs right away. So. <laughs> they did. Yes. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I want to start with is, is Steve Torrance. And um, in typical kind of Capco racing fashion, they came out, made one or two licks on Friday, made one or two on Saturday, and, and uh, basically Thursday and Friday, they didn't even pull the thing out of the trailer on Saturday. And, I mean, they didn't miss a beat. High 60s, shutting the car off early at barely over 300 miles an hour. Well, Brian, that tells me there's a lot of confidence there, but it also tells me that they haven't really changed a lot. You know, if you look at their performance at the end of the year, I mean, they were, they really had the second best car. I mean, Selena's fired a few shots. You know, of course, Brittany, she was still setting low ET, but, you know, Steve Torrance, Richard Hogan, uh, Lagana, they were, you know, they were just a half a step behind them. It, it did seem like when they were smoking the tires, uh, breaking traction, during some of the qualifying runs, it just seemed like they were trying to press and and trying to outperform uh, Brittany's car. Uh, but I, I think th- the reality was, is so, it, at some point, they came to terms with they didn't really have to. I yeah. think that you know Steve understood his ability on the starting line, and um, I, I, I think they had enough confidence. They knew they could go toe to toe with her, and and um, you know and, and win the championship. So uh, I think it, it, Steve is still the one with the crown. Uh, they're not going to ease up, and they're still the ones to beat. They are, and what I think is going to be really interesting is in all these conversations I was having with people out there in Phoenix in, in the top fuel category, so many people kept referencing Gainesville. Like so many people kept saying, you know, when we get to Gainesville or by the time we get to Gainesville, they'll have their kind of program sorted out, which to me is like you might as well just hand – are we supposed to just hand the guy the first two Wallies? Because their program is is sorted out. They don't have they don't have anything to figure out. So I want to talk a little bit about these first two races where, I mean, you can't give anybody anything, but Steve Torrance is going to be rolling out there the same way he left, and it seems like everybody else is still trying to get their parts and pieces squared away, and that includes the team. Yeah, you know, Brian, the magic is not just in the engine. I mean, there's always a search for a little more power, you know, whether they can find it in the supercharger and the cylinder heads, wherever they can find it, um, you know, and, and maybe it's with their overall combination. I, and, and that quest never ends. I know that um, I mentioned on the last podcast, there's there, Alan Johnson may have a new cylinder head. But, you know, you look at John Force's combination, Alan Johnson's, you know, the DSR, the cylinder head, blower supercharger program i mean it's you wouldn't realize it but they're you know based on the performance and the elapsed times and how these cars run i mean they're they're all over 330 miles an hour they're pretty close to you know running in the three you know high 360 range low 70s if it gets a little warmer but you wouldn't realize that the, the combinations are are so much different you know some teams rely a little more on compression um uh you know, some uh, run more overdrive, more supercharger, pumping more air into the motor. But, you know, the, the 
the technology never ends in the clutch department and even in the chassis. You know, of course, you were there at testing. I wasn't there, but I was watching the stream. I study the photos, the pictures. You know, I talked to a couple of the tuners. And, you know, even in the chassis, I mean, I, I saw some, to me, seem like pretty scary pictures of the chassis flexing. So you know that some teams just that it, it hasn't ended, you know, with, with whatever the spec is. You know, there's there's they're constantly looking at, trying to get the chassis to flex differently. There's always the motor placement, motor back, motor forward, motor, uh, you know, the angle of it. Um, you know, so there's, I'm guessing that the majority of what's taking place in trying to get these cars to perform is in the clutch department. So I think that'll be interesting when they talk about, you know, Gainesville, there was testing and even the teams that made eight, 10, 12 runs, um, I, they're not through. They're, uh, they're still looking for, you know whatever it is they're trying they try they're trying and um i think by the time they get to gainesville they realize that they have enough test runs enough runs in competition that that's where they should find that sweet spot you know you mentioned the chassis and and one of the fascinating parts of this uh, kind of exploration to do i was doing at that testing was talking to the coletta guys and you know the alan johnson going there which was one of the biggest stories uh, the, you know the latest official breaking story of the off season so to speak but he's been there all winter to a degree um, he had them basically cut those cars to pieces and completely rebuild them, which I think is interesting in the fact that, you know, we talk about, you know, guys that are crew chiefs and engine tuners. Well, the reality is it's a whole system, as you mentioned. So the Coletta chassis are completely different per Alan Johnson's instructions. Alan has always come from a different school. You know, up in Northern California, there was, uh, you know, this guy named Brad Hadman. And, they, you know, everyone had uh, – you know a, a certain chassis and of course murph who was always known for making one of the best funny car chassis along with a guy named steve pluger um and and most most other chassis builders they kind of copied you know primarily those two funny cars and in top fuel murph started making murph mckinney started making a top fuel chassis and then of course some of these teams started making their own and and they changed a few things a few subtleties they added some detail and they all do a really nice job but you go back to the origins of, you know, when cars, top fuel cars started going over 300 miles an hour and they really started to get down into, you know, that performance range. That was what the start of what we have now. And Brad Hadman was one of those uh, innovators in the top fuel car. So there's no question that Alan was heavily influenced by that. And, uh, you know, everyone has a different way of, of building, you know, a chassis and getting it to flex in different areas. And, um, you know, that's no big surprise. I don't know exactly what they've done, but I know with Alan there, he's not just going to go in and, you know, and, and fine tune the engine combination. Alan is, is a chassis guy. He's a master uh, horsepower maker and he understands the clutch. And that's, you know, you look at today, some of the best tuners of, of today in top fuel and in nitro funny car. And, you know, these guys don't just under, there was always a, a guy that was really good on the engine but maybe lacked, you know, some knowledge and his ability to manage the clutch. But you look at the best tuners now and, you know, they can do it all. Yeah, and that's that's really where the you know that's really where the the whole system is going to be employed there at at Coletta Motorsports and then you know even in talking to the crew guys in the staging lanes one one day the guys that work on Doug Coletta's car. Um, they're the same guys, so that's that's an important thing we got to talk about too. The, the crew guys on the car are the same ones that have been on the car. They didn't uh, typically. Alan and Brian Houston have had their own kind of guys working with them. Those guys decided to stay down with Mike Salinas. So the 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 men that are assembling the car and doing the the physical work are the same. And 
it was neat to talk to them in the staging lanes because they they talk about who they're working for now uh, with like reference. I mean, it's like they're working for the boss. You know what I mean? And and they talk about the guys were talking about the you know obviously they've always put some pressure on themselves, but they're feeling it. I mean, they are definitely feeling a level of pressure on that car. And it, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm right. Would you would you say that that car? is probably the one in Top Fuel that does have the most pressure on it to win at this point? Well, it should. I mean, every team internally, they're, you know, they, they're going to put a lot of pressure on themselves. I know Antron, he's moved into that ownership role. I mean, that's a whole different type of pressure. But, you know, Brian, of all the announcements and all the team and driver changes and all the new things that have happened, uh, all good, great news. But, you know, that shiny stuff wears off. And we're one step away from, you know, getting to the first race of the year. So there's, you know, all the new things and the new changes by the time we do get Pomona in and Phoenix and especially Gainesville, you know, all that new ownership and all the hyperbole and all the stuff that's floating around, it's, it's really going to become about performance. And I think, I think by Gainesville, we'll start to figure out who is, who the players are going to be. And, uh, but Doug Coletta, there's no question that, you know, we've always talked about how the talent that he has and, you know, and when I think about Doug, he's a talented driver and he really hasn't been able to showcase that. I mean, I, I don't think we've seen the best of Doug Coletta. I think that, uh, you know, of course, Alan Johnson is going to make big improvements to that car. I think Doug is going to be a top three driver. Um, but I, I think you need the skill set that Doug has to compete because it's not just him now. I mean, you can, you can, there's, there's six drivers and I'm just talking drivers that have the talent that can win a championship. And there's, there's going to be some other drivers that have talent, but you know, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I know that yeah, I've the, broken this down. There's six drivers that you have to compete with. You not only have to have the car, but you have to have the ability and the talent to compete with them on the starting line in terms of car control. When these cars don't do what you tell them or what the tuner wants them to do, you know, Doug has that unique ability to save a lot of runs. And when you start adding up some of those races throughout the year, I mean, there's going to be five or six or seven or ten races that the driver is going to save. Then there's going to be another dozen or two dozen that the driver is going to determine the outcome of a race on the starting line. So you start running the numbers and doing the math. That's where talent um, you know, rises to the top, and hey, Doug is one of those impact drivers. Yeah, and it's interesting. Just to close the close this the uh, kind of uh, book here on the Coletta story, they ran three seventy two and three seventy three as their best runs respectively in those two cars, which did not put them to the front of the pack. The, the quickest cars that we had were running in the high three sixties, but from where they were coming in on Thursday to where they finished up on Saturday. They made huge leaps and bounds of uh, of improvement. So we'll see how much of that uh, gets directly employed at Pomona, a track that Alan Johnson, of course, is very very familiar with. Um, Mike Salinas ran down three sixty seven uh, in testing, and and of course he's working with Rob Flynn. But Alan Johnson does still have contact with that team, so I think that's also something we need to make sure people understand. He's always going to be involved with that, as long as you're running Alan parts, and, and you know most. Most people may not understand this, but if you're buying parts from Allen, and and when I look back at, you know, what I was doing the last five or six or seven years that I was racing, uh, I should have consulted with a guy like Allen. I mean, I was buying his parts, and what I didn't fully understand that 
and, and Allen's not the only one, but if you're buying their parts and their tune-ups and their, and their not their tune-ups, you got to pay for that. But these guys will help you and they may not tell you everything and they may not come over and, and spend hours with you, but they'll give you enough direction, uh, to, to make it work. And you combine that with the experience that Rob Flynn has. I mean, that that's still going to be a very formidable combination. You know, it's, it's going to fall on Mike's shoulders once again. Yeah. We saw him make big improvements at the end of the year in his reaction times. And we saw a couple of times he fell off. I mean, the trick is to be consistent, to do it all the time. So, hey, Mike is a driver. I mean, he's going to have more pressure than ever as long as Rob can keep that car performing the way it is. And, and, and we, you know, in the history of this sport, there have been a lot of crew chiefs, a lot of tuners that have inherited a setup and we've seen some guys take the ball and run. Uh, Mike Green's one of them. He inherited a setup from Lee Beard and um, kept winning championships. And you know that that tune-up changed over the years. So Mike just proved to everyone that he had some talent and he didn't just take what Lee Beard had. He he actually paid attention. And, and Rob Flynn now has you know the opportunity to do the same thing. And of course, we've seen some that uh, have taken a good setup and over you know four or five or six races, they start to yeah, they, you know, they start to think about it. They start thinking too much. Yeah. <laughs> well, they, yeah, and they put their own personal touch on it. And they want to change this and that, and it and it goes to heck. But it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But pretty amazing what's you know what lurks ahead uh, in top fuel. And you know, one more thing. You know, I I just I love this rivalry between you know the Leah and and the Schumacher, but but really Schumacher and Steve Torn. Yes, the, you, you know, you those s- guys are going to go toe to toe. And one guy you really I, he kind of flies under the radar and i don't think we've seen the best of his ability i've always thought he was very talented um when he tuned jack beckman's funny car that car could have potentially won a championship it could have won a championship the performance was there but beckman didn't have a lot of experience in the funny car and force was hitting his licks but you know todd okahara i think i think uh you give him a little time i think he's going to be in the thick of things yeah and and you you kind of stole my next thought perfectly there because I see a, a, an inevitable and kind of awesome collision of personality and ego and all the stuff that we love about sports between Schumacher and Torrance. And I think we're already starting to see a little bit of it. Uh, Schumacher had some had some pretty spicy comments in a story that came out over testing about, um, you know, Torrance kind of declaring himself the new sheriff in town. And, and, and Schumacher's <laughs> like, no, he isn't. I haven't been here for three years. Nobody's nobody's the new sheriff anywhere right now. And it, to me, those two guys are going to provide a lot of fireworks on and off the racetrack. Well, you might have some some egos that have been earned. Yes, uh, you've got to earn an ego in this business. <clears throat> so I think that's going to be interesting. I, I just think that you have to respect what Tony Schumacher has done. And Brian, you and I will always go back to that race, which, in my opinion, could be considered one of the greatest top fuel races of all time. Um, not not a, a championship really wasn't at stake. I mean, it, it it had implications for Steve Torrance, but that final round in terms of entertainment, oh man, and build up the build up going into that and the odds that that went into that race. I, I just I think that that will continue. I think they're both exceptional drivers, and and it's just you know there's going to be some guys like Antron and great to see Prop back. Um, that are going to be mixing it up. But I, I think when those two guys go to the starting line, uh, it, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be the things that, that TV really is made of is just a lot of drama going into that. I mean, really the only question mark is, is how, 
you know, how will, how close will, will Okahara be able to get the performance of yeah. Tony Schumacher, you know, to, to Steve Torrance. And I think they can in time. I don't know if they can do it on a consistent basis, but I think you'll see an improvement from, from what Okahara was doing uh, with what he had to work with last year. And look, I, as the last point, I, I think it's a welcome breath of fresh air that, um, you know, I think it's pretty clear that, you know, Schumacher respects Steve Torrance, but he didn't really like him. And that's fine. That's called being a real human being. And um, I think that's just going to provide provide even more uh, even more fun. And like you said, it's 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 going to come down to the fact that he needs to have a competitive car for this to be any sort of a you know an actual rivalry to speak of. But uh, the, the the quality of people with Tito Kahar and his brother, you know, may give him a couple of races, but uh, they they should be there. Uh, Funny car was great over the course of the test. I think um, in so many ways, maybe even more impressive than Top Fuel because of how tightly everybody was grouped up. Uh, John Force's 383 was a monstrous run. That was definitely one that sent a, a ripple through the pits. It was. Uh, that's a big number, and what that does is that that kind of takes the target. It, you know, first it was J.R. Todd. You know, he'd run that 86. Uh, you know, Caps comes away with uh, an 85, if I'm not mistaken, and Hagen an 84. Um, if I'm looking, if I'm looking at my numbers right. Yeah, there were the, those cars were all kind of mid, mid, really fast, but mid three eighties cars. The three eighty three was a jaw dropper. Yeah, I mean, when you when you think about a three eighty three, I mean, now you look at the performance of Funny Car and the expectations, and you know, I I would have guessed that a, a three eighty six is going to be, you know, pretty impressive. That's that's going to sit on the on the pole for a lot of races, but maybe not. It might take a, a 384. You got to have the right conditions. And you know, one thing about Phoenix and testing is there's really no pressure. Yeah. Um, and and anyone can go up and try something that they may not necessarily try at Pomona. I mean, for starters, the starting line at Phoenix is pretty good, and at Pomona, it's good. You have to have the right conditions, but occasionally, uh, it it. It's, it could be unpredictable, you know, as the weather changes. And and Phoenix, the starting line is so good that a lot of cars shake. So, and and typically, the 60-foot times in Phoenix, and, and tuners, crew chiefs, they'll, they've gone out there with a tape measure. And the 60-feet six, clocks are 60 feet. But for some reason, uh, Phoenix and testing and Phoenix for the race, they've always yielded pretty impressive early numbers. Um you know, so I'm not saying that the clocks are hot. Oh, they're, yeah, the quickest 60 foot times in the history of drag racing and top fuel and funny car both at Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, but just overall, the conditions were right, and there was no pressure on any of these guys. And I, I can tell you that I've followed testing, I've been involved in testing, and I've seen some teams run good and go to Pomona and get beat in the first or second round. And I've seen some teams that have been a little conservative. You know, like Cruz. When you look at the Snap-on car and their performance. I mean, they were just getting down the track, and and I know everyone is trying something a little different. But I think I think the truth is going to come on Friday at four thirty in Pomona. Um, but when you go back and look at the times, uh, Force was pretty impressive. Hagen, even Caps, you know those guys. The, the signal is is that, and and what that tells the competition is, you know, look, it's there. We're gonna. We're going to lay it out there some, at some point. So it really kind of changes psychology when you have to race those guys that come away from testing 
that ran that quick. Yeah, and I think like psychologically too. I, I think in thinking back on the last runs that people made, Austin Brock made his best run of the weekend, the last pass down the racetrack, and I know for him. Um, he was uh, he was not really feeling it for himself the first day or two, just uh, the way he was leaving the starting line. But um, in catching up with him later in the weekend, he certainly had come around. He felt more comfortable in the car, and for that team to leave with this quickest run of the weekend under their belt, I think was uh, a, a bolstering thing for them. You know, Pro Stock was interesting in the fact that it was basically just the KB cars there. The uh, elite team has decided they went to test by themselves up in Bakersfield, kind of a closed door situation up there to keep uh maybe keep some of the numbers under wraps but uh not shockingly greg anderson was very very quick uh they were running the cars to a thousand feet so we were seeing numbers in the low 550s he went to 549 then matt hartford went to 549 and then on sunday when everybody else pretty much gone home Derek kramer went to 548 the mcgay hayes ran very well uh in the very low 550s as well so you know, we got 20 pro stock, 20 pro stock cars on the sheet at Pomona. We got 20 funny cars on the sheet at Pomona. We got 17 top fuelers, which we're actually going to have more top fuel cars in Phoenix because racers like Trip Tatum aren't making the trip up to Pomona. Um, it's just exciting, man. It's just exciting to, to see a full entry sheet for the first time in six years at the Winter Nationals. Yeah, Brian, and I think the opportunity, you know, for us and for the TV show is – you know, to try to uh, capitalize and, and uh, you know, take advantage of that. Uh, I think that for the qualifying shows, uh, I think we saw an increase in, yes. in our viewership, which has been, which is great. But I, I, we always thought, you and I both thought it could be so much better. There were a couple of races that we did see some of that drama. And now we're going to have it at the first race. And we should have some more of it at the second race and especially Gainesville. So uh, I think uh, across the board, you know, really with the exception of, the competitors there's if there's 20 cars four of them are going to be sitting out watching and and uh i've heard you talk about it it's going to be interesting to see because it's been a while since we've seen um a good driver a good team that wins on a regular basis that has not qualified and now you have three you have three cracks at it you don't have the luxury of having four qualifying sessions so if you miss one or you miss two, all of a sudden you've got that pressure and the potential is there to not qualify. And I, I remember, and it was rare, but I remember seeing John Force not qualify or, or Tony Schumacher, you know, extra, extraordinary conditions. But uh, I think that's just going to add to the drama, um, you know, and in pro stock, I think we're going to see those numbers improve because of the, you know, the overall conditions, you know, I think we're lower, we're at 1100 feet versus the high desert, yeah, um, low desert, but higher elevation, uh, less air. So those numbers will improve. They'll increase. Uh, and I just, I, I just, if you look at the pro categories, you look at pro stock and top fuel and funny car. I, and I, I just think this is an era that we can go back to when you had Jed Coughlin, Bruce Allen, and all these great pro stock racers, and I think the level of competition and the caliber of drivers is there in pro stock. And I, I think like funny car and top fuel, um, I, I think it's, it's just going to be one for the books. And so, you know, one last question I want to hit you with before uh, you go, which is typically if you and I are not talking about drag racing, we're, we're talking about boxing or something relating to boxing. So this thought keeps rolling around in my head about, about Steve Torrance and equating him to my favorite boxer of all time, Rocky Marciano. And, and Marciano, he requires, uh, you know, retires undefeated, forty nine and zero. He defended his defended his belt many times. But the one knock that people always put up against Marciano is that 
he fought in what was considered a relatively weak time period. He, Joe Lewis was very old when he fought him. Uh, when he fought Jersey Joe Walcott, he was kind of old. Archie Moore was old. So does that is this a conversation that may happen about Steve Torrance in the future if he doesn't lock down a fifth one this year when, when everybody's loaded up against him? Well, anybody can argue that what he's accomplished is nothing short of amazing, and I would agree with that. Yeah. However, uh, what what you just stated, Brian, is is the reality of it, and it is a fact that the era, the competition, and the level of competition, you know, that's part of it. You know, you look at – I follow this argument all the time with Floyd, Floyd Mayweather, and, you know, Mike Tyson's a pretty smart guy, and I think his response – to Mayweather saying, you know, I'm, I'm greater than Ali because he brought up, he said, is this the Ali that got beat by a fighter that only had seven professional fights? That was Leon Spinks. But you've got to measure uh, a driver and a fighter on, on different things. There's not just the record and who he fought that, that, that factor into it. It's the caliber of competition. It was who was in that era. So there's no question this will be the biggest challenge for Steve Torrance. And if he wins a championship against Doug Coletta, Antron Brown, Justin Ashley, Tony Schumacher, you got Tony Stewart rolling out a new team, that's a little bit of an unknown quantity. What Leah, how is she going to size up to the rest of the field? But all of these things are happening. It's like a collision course. Um, you know, so for as great as that team and that driver and the tuner and those crew members, for as great as that group has been, if they win this, there will be no question. This would end yeah. the LeBron and Jordan argument. <laughs> it's going to be Jordan. It, and, you know, I, I think, you know, Steve Torrance is already being compared to some of the all-time greats. When you look at Kenny Bernstein and Joe Amato, they raced in an era where the, the level of talent with the top ten drivers – we knew we know who they were they were all great drivers they were all great teams and i i think that's what we have in front of us right now so um i think steve is just he's risen to the occasion so many times i don't see why he's not going to again but if ever a guy had a george foreman a frazier you know and all <laughs> these all these great fighters, like the middleweight right yep. it's like hagler hearns and you had all these great fighters duran at the same time and that is the true measure of greatness there you have it right there tony look forward to seeing you this weekend and getting the uh getting the fox sports show on the road for our qualifying show we're going to make on friday that'll air at uh, 10 p.m eastern 7 p.m local on friday night uh, travel safely and i will see you in pomona all right i gotta get out of dodge it's like a ghost town here the last <laughs> rig i saw leaving was fat heads and they're not even a race team so i'm headed west tomorrow on a plane see you soon Great words from Tony Pedrick on there. Great perspective as always. It's just fun. Fun to dig into these topics with the guy because he knows what he's talking about and certainly uh, enjoys this stuff as much as I do. Another guy who is uh, net deep in drag racing and has been for the better part of his life. Of course, I'm talking about NHRA's Phil Burgess, a man who has been at the helm of National Dragster, NHRA.com, and so much of NHRA's media over the years. Uh, He brings with him a wealth of knowledge, a lifetime of experience, and I'm just Certainly generally interested to hear what he has to say about his feelings coming out of the Phoenix test and his feelings coming into the NHRA Lucas Oil Winter National. So without further ado, we welcome Mr. Phil Burgess onto the NHRA Insider Podcast. How you doing, Phil? Good, Brian. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Ready for Pomona. Yeah, yep. you you and me it. and you and me and everybody else. It um you know, it's it's fascinating. I, I the first question I have to ask you is because of the amount of time you spent covering this sport and, and how close you've been to it is how, 
how does this feel? How does this compare? What does this offseason stack up to in your historical perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of people are talking about, oh, the greatest season ever, whatever like that. And a lot of times, you know, a lot, you know, a lot of times that's hyperbole, that's hype. This time, it just feels real good. It feels genuine. You know, I had just so many talks with drivers over the winter. And it's one thing for, for uh, you know, us in the media and, and who work for NHRA to, to promote something. But when the drivers themselves are almost as giddy as we are, then that's a true sign that this, this is a real deal. It is. And, you know, Top Fuel's gotten basically all the headlines. And I'm not sure that's that's wrong because um, we look at I mean, I'm saying up to 10 drivers that have a legitimate shot at it, like 10 championship level drivers that we're going to see 22 times this year, at least according to them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is not going to be a, you know you be a walk in the park for Steve Torrance. I mean, you got you know, people that were threatening him last year, and Brittany obviously, Salinas looked really good last year and looked even good in testing. Um, you know, Kalita and, and Langdon, you know, with AJ and, and Brian over there. Uh, yeah, a lot of these guys, you know, that that maybe in the last couple of years you maybe were able to overlook a little bit. You can't overlook them this year. And you know, I think it's uh, a new experience for me. Definitely, will be this this idea that when you look out across that top fuel field on any given weekend, that the driver quality, like the density of quality of the drivers, we look at how many guys and girls averaged between, let's say, well, Langley was 049 on the season, but let's say we, let's say we look at people who averaged 50 to 65 on the light. That's the majority of this group. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody has, has really had to step up the game. You know, the technology is all, I mean, you know, not all cars are created equal. Not all crew chiefs are created equal. But, you know, there's a lot of parity in the performance. So I think the drivers have really, you know, found the need to step up. And you got guys like, you know, Justin Ashley and Austin Proc kind of driving that. People know that, you know, you can't be up there and go 60 or 70 like you used to be able to get away with it. So I think it's just kind of built upon itself and realizing that these drivers have, you know, have a huge role in the outcome of the races. And obviously another massive storyline among the dozens that we have uh, coming into this season, this this ownership kind of fractured, this fractured ownership, and, and I mean fractured in a good way. We see, of course, Caps out on his own. We see Antron Brown on his own. Now we understand Buddy Hull has bought, bought Tim Wilkerson's operation. He's a team owner on his own. Uh, it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Yeah, it's just a great story. I did an interview with uh, Antron and Ron that ran in the first issue of National Dragster, and they both were saying that they think this is a really good turning point for the sport. You know, you've been around long enough. A lot of people say, you know, well, what happens when Don Schumacher doesn't decide he doesn't want to do this anymore, or Connie Coletta, or or John Force, and like, how are these guys going to struggle and you know be on their own? And we found out that they very well can do it. They've got it all set up. They figured out how to do it. They learned the lessons while they were employed by these guys. And it may be the new thing. You know, I'm not saying the super team is going to go away, but it certainly opens a path for people to do this, guys like Buddy Hall and Josh Hart and people like that to do this on their own. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that, like you said, it is almost um, it's like a, a self-feeding fire in terms of the fact that once one person sees somebody else can do it, they look around and go, well, that guy's not that much smarter than I am, right? If that guy can right. do it, I think I might be able to do this too. Right. I mean, a lot of people point towards towards Steve Torrance because he runs, you know, off the shelf parts. Basically, he doesn't have his own, you know, CNC factory like like Schumacher or Force does. Kind of, you know, maybe a, a fine line to draw. There, obviously, it's a well financed team and a two car team with a lot of talent. But it did, did show you can win championships with off the shelf parts, and I think that makes it a little easier for everybody too to take that that plunge. It does, and. You know, I like. I want to talk a little bit about Cameron Caruso as well because that's a story that um, has been has been getting attention. I think it's been living in the shadow of some of the other maybe larger names. But you know, this is um, this is a very inspiring pro stock story along the same lines of the Caps and Antron story. It's they they took the plunge and they're they 
the camp the Caruso family owns their own team and they're and they're going at this very seriously. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you, you can tell they're they dead serious. You know, they hired Jimmy Yates, obviously very talented guy, former world champion. And, you know, it, it's interesting. She's only, what, the seventh female to compete in the class, let alone the second person to run a full season. So it's going to be very interesting to watch that dynamic evolve throughout the year, you know, how she she uh, interacts with or goes against uh, Erica, obviously the established person in the class, let alone female, but, you know, obviously one of the stars of the class. And I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of drama behind the scenes and a lot of interesting intrigue for us watching. It really is. And, you know, we were talking about it at the Phoenix test among several of us kind of sitting up in the tower. And that'll be a that that moment. And it inevitably will happen at some point when Camry lines up next to Erica is a watershed moment for pro stock. I mean, you want to talk yeah. about, uh, you know, Camry says it like most of the women her age that race say it, that they watched the movie when they were kids. And here she will be sure. eventually racing against the subject of that Disney film. Right, absolutely. And uh, Bob Fry gave me an interesting stat today. There's only been one time where two females in pro stock have raced one another, which was Erica and, and Grace Howell back in, in 2012 at Charlotte, the four riders. It was in the quad. So uh, the first time that, that uh, Erica and Camry go against each other, and get a lot of eyes on that. Yeah, it's uh, just an embarrassment of riches. This afternoon, uh, you know, right before I called you, I learned that Bob Tasca signed a multi-year extension with Ford Performance. It's like, <laughs> it's it's after the last couple of years, it feels like a giant payoff. You know, it feels like that, that the reason that we had to go through the, the struggles we did over the last couple of years was to kind of deliver us to this moment. But my goodness, it's crazy. Yeah, it's just, and it just feels like it keeps snowballing. You know, one thing after another, one success leads to another. And, you know, it, you, know you know, the last few years have been tough. I mean, 20, you know, 2020, we had only 11 races we could run because of, of the pandemic. And then last year was kind of a little bit, you know, get better year. And now this year, it just feels like everything's just kind of just got this huge amount of momentum and it's spreading not just, you know, from guys like Antron, and, and caps, but throughout the throughout the whole sport, even I mean, you look at you know Luke Bugatti just signed a big deal for you know his sportsman car with Moser, stuff like that. It just builds people see that trust in the sport and the belief that it's going somewhere. Um, you know, we've we've weathered the storm as it were, and you know it's full speed ahead. You know, one of the things I think you can speak on in a different capacity than many other people is the role of of media, not necessarily national dragster media, but outside media in drag racing and. One of the effects I think we've seen so far of the one, the independent team ownership to the introduction of Tony Stewart into the sport and third, you know, Toyota just throwing down. They just today released a very well polished, beautifully done, hilarious video called Horsepower Hangover that it, that features uh, Antron and JR and Alexis and, and Sean Langdon. But this is a this is another part of our sport that almost quietly is transforming itself the content that our teams are pushing out now is beyond anything we've seen in a long time if ever right absolutely i got a chance to see that video earlier today and it's on their youtube page it's on facebook and i believe it's also on twitter uh you guys ought to check it out it's really really well done i mean antron brown just a, a stunning you know job of acting sean and alexis and jr they all have their their, their great turns in this thing you, you wouldn't know these guys weren't professional actors because it's really really well done and well produced so but to your point brian yeah everybody's getting on board people are doing things uh, upping their social media games upping their 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 marketing games up sponsorship hospital everything's just growing and it's just for for those of us you know that, that make a living doing this and struggle the last couple of years it's so so exciting to see and just so re-energizing for all of us i think yeah the one thing i i came away from the the toyota video about antron was like I was I've looked at a rock star right I watched that video and Antron was the lead of the thing and this is a guy who by all right 
is seemingly on a rocket trajectory to be like a crossover star in our sport. And I'm not saying Don Schumacher Racing held him back, but he's gone from being a, a group in a group of a big name and a group of other big names to standing on his own two feet. And and this video to me was almost like the Antron Brown coming out party to the world. Absolutely. I mean, you know, those of us who know Antron and those of you who have seen him on TV know, you know, what a delightful person he is, delightful human being, engaging, family man. All He's got all these great qualities about himself and just down to earth. And this this video just shows, like you said, it's, it's a crossover for him. And I don't know, hope he never leaves our sport to go to Hollywood, but uh, <laughs> based on this, it looks, it looks like he could. Um, you know, when we look at uh, the kind of independent scene around around the country, we we see the the California diehard independent funny cars at the uh, Winter Nationals with Tony Gerardo, uh, Alex Milodinovich, uh, Jason Rupert out there, Jeff Deal. Um, this is also a part of the sport that's growing, and it's growing quietly. But we're seeing more independent cars kind of popping up, and among those independent cars, people expanding schedules. So it's it's like a, it's this multi-layer cake we keep kind of cutting into with this conversation but the independent teams are going to be as big a factor in this as well because it's no longer the guy that's just happy to show up most of these independent teams can can reel off an 80 somewhere in that zone in top fuel and, and make a show right yeah absolutely i, th- I think you, you know you got guys the newer guys you mentioned uh, gerardo coming in he's he's expanding uh, milodinovich is just just trying hard to get the new car working but i really think that there's some untapped potential there and, and you look at this, you know, we're going to have, you know, 20 funny cars in Pomona and, you know, very possibly could see the first all three second field. I mean, you know, I went through over the list and there's, you know, 14 guys in the field that have run threes, two others that have been very close in, in uh, Terry Haddock and Jeff Deal. Um, you know, you know, that, that thing will be a great milestone and it just shows the depth. It's not just, you know, four or eight guys that can run in the threes, but, you know, 16 guys that can run in the threes. That's, that's pretty impressive. It is really impressive. And along those same lines, doubling back to top fuel, you know, how long do you think it'll take for that 377 all-time bump spot to be to be mangled? Do you think it's going to take us to get to Indy, or do you think it's even going to last that long? No, I don't think it's going to last that long. I mean, you, you look at testing, and there was, you know, you know, 12, 13, 14 guys that ran in the 370s or some in the 360s. Um, you know, you know, I'm sure you've looked at the forecast this weekend, and if you guys haven't looked at the forecast, it's going to be amazing. Mid-70s on Thursday, uh, on Friday and Saturday, and in the high 60s on Sunday. I mean, that's, you know, that's horsepower heaven. It, it could happen in Pomona. It is. And in the 70s runs that I was watching in Phoenix, uh, many of those are happening in the, you know, quote unquote, heat of the day. And granted, right. we saw those conditions that you're talking about in, in Phoenix with, with a little more altitude than we're than we're going to see uh, in L.A. So by right, um, like you said, that the horsepower conditions are, are all there. Um you know, pro stock as well. Twenty cars in pro stock uh, for the Winter Nationals. I think there are already twenty-one entered for the Gator Nationals. I mean, <laughs> this was a class that that was, you know, seemingly one foot in the grave five years ago, and now, you know, with the addition of Caruso and bigger than that, the addition of Titan Racing Engines that's powering her car. Now, granted, I believe they're the only. She's going to be the only car they're powering to start with, but they'll be more than willing to build pro stock engines for whoever wants them, which is another massive, massive boon for the class. Yeah, yeah, sure. That car comes out and starts running, you know, low fifties or something. Yeah, they're, they're going to get some new customers real quick. And you know, to your earlier point, you know, it wasn't that long ago. Pro stock had a, a severely shortened schedule. The, the class, you know, you know, was. You know, in, in real trouble, and now you've got this. Not only the resurgence of Greg Anderson and Eric Enders up to the top, you've got these, you know, the Kyle Koretskis and 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 the Dallas Glens of the world. Um, the class has really, really become exciting and competitive, and just more backstories than you could, you know, could count. And of course, Cameron being one of the biggest ones. 
yeah, that's um, the, 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 you know, juxtaposition of Camry coming in, Greg trying to win his 100th, uh, Erica trying to reclaim her top spot in the category. I mean, there's just a billion, <laughs> once again, a billion yeah. different subplots to talk about. You know, one class that one class that is stymies me and one class that I look at and, and kind of it kind of put up an eyebrow and I can't figure out in my mind how to turn it as quickly as I want to turn it is alcohol funny car. And and, you know, alcohol funny car is a spectacular way to go drag racing. And it's been part of NHRA racing for what, 40 something years now. But, man, we got to we got to get some energy going in alcohol funny car. And I just don't know what the answer is. Right. It, it's been, you know, the, the car counts have obviously not been what everybody would hope for. And you've got, you know, three or four guys kind of monopolizing the top spot. You know, your, your Doug Gorins, your, your Sean Bellamere's. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it really feels like, like, like it's, it's due for a, a revitalization. And I'm not really sure how that, how that goes. I mean, the class can be very competitive. You know, some races like India can be really close. Other, other ones, not so much. Um, yeah, it just feels like maybe some more guys need to come into it. Some, some more of the tuners, I think, because, you know, you look at Steve Boggs and everything he's done for Sean Bellamere. Yes. Um, that's, you know, that he's just, you know, I want to say he's head and shoulders above everybody else because they didn't win the championship two years ago. But, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's such a daunting, and those cars, you know, we know that they are probably the hardest cars in drag racing to drive. I mean, you know, three speed transmissions and they're all, you know, it's, they're tough. And to find the guy that can get it down the track and the tuners that can, you know, put the right combination in there, it can be tricky. So, uh, you know, the, the bar is, is high for a class that people maybe don't think is as difficult as it is. And we talk about, you know, teams and racers that are head and shoulders above the rest. If we talk about the transition to top alcohol dragster, which really doesn't have the doesn't have that attendance, that attendance shortage, if you will, that we see in top alcohol funny car um, dragsters that are kind of growing on trees around the country. And for the first time in many years, we're not going to see a member of the Meyer family <laughs> directly. Uh, holding a trophy, and we can say that with confidence, right? Because Rachel stepped away from the seat. Obviously, uh, Megan's uh, raising her her child and love and family life. So the door is open for, is it a Julie Natus? Is it a Jasmine right. Salinas? I mean, this is kind of an exciting storyline in that class as well. Absolutely, because, you know, you know Julie's going to slip right into the, to the car that, that, you know, Meg, that Rachel got, that she got from Megan. Um, you know, you got Matt Cummings, as, as I understand, is going to run a full season instead of splitting time with the, the McPhillips family. And then uh, I did a really nice interview with uh, Jackie Frick for that's in the next issue of National Direction and talked about her chances. And you know she she had an, uh, a you know a breakout career yeah. year last year and, and only finished second just because she lost you know one final round you know at, at Vegas. So I really think that's a car that's strong and, and they're committed to come out and do this and they realize you know that that the Meyer sisters aren't out there. But you know Julie's going to be just as tough. You know Cummings will be just as tough. It, it's it's. It's very interesting, you know. Obviously, the fuel cars seem to be, have the advantage, but now there's been a rule change for those guys uh, for their fuel temperature that kind of maybe you know allow the blown cars to get a little closer. So you might see Sean Cowie back in it. Joey Severance can't be in a slump forever. It's it's going to be intriguing. Yeah, and we of course have uh, Mike Coughlin working uh, working with the McPhillips family as well for his uh, Jags uh, dragster that'll be racing this year. So yeah, exactly. There's no 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 shortage of big names. Almost the same as we talk about top fuel, but obviously the fun part, I think, for the hardcore fans in, in classes like Top Alcohol Dragster is that, you know, for the majority of the year, these racers are gaining their points independently of each other, and then we really start to see them clash either at Indy or at the end of the season, and, and that's what really, to me, that's the magic of those classes. When you see a, when you see a Jackie Frick, they all look at each other and say, well, we got to go west. You know, we weren't planning on it, but we got to go west, and they, and they take their best shot to try to lock a championship down. It makes the end of the year very special. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, don't think those guys aren't monitoring what the other guys are doing and watching, you know, um, you know, the live timing or, or on the, the, uh, HR.tv feed. They're watching all those guys. They, they got a real good book. Uh, Jackie was telling me that, that, you know, when she's not doing her full-time job as a travel agent or racing, she's watching videos of her competitors to see what their tendencies are. So, you know, this is, this is very serious business for a lot of them. They take it very seriously and go to great lengths to do that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a great class. I mean, I really love both, both the alcohol classes. And one kind of closing point I want to I want to get to, and we'll double back on the top fuel here. It seems almost ready made, and it, it's only ready made if both cars are up to snuff. But the inevitable seeming clash of Tony Schumacher and Steve Torrance, competitively, personality wise, it like it's all the pieces are sitting there for this to turn into, I think, one of the most cool not even in modern drag racing, just in over the course of time. I mean, it's this could turn into a real one-two-man show here between those two guys who are both very strong-willed, very strong opinioned, and certainly very confident of their abilities. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a point for Torrance to make. I mean, a lot of his success the last two, three years have come kind of in a vacuum of, of Schumacher's absence. Um, so, you know, what happens when they're out there for a full season against each other? It's going to be interesting. I think, you know, Tony wants to come back, and he's the winningest top fuel driver all time. Um, Steve Torrance is the greatest top fuel driver over the last, you know, four or five, six years. Uh, I think there's a lot of ego involved for sure. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out the first time they race each other. You know, any shenanigans on the starting line, any, you know, extra celebration, you know, Steve Torrance is not shy about showing his emotions. It'll be fun. It will absolutely be fun, and and waiting in the corner will be a guy who doesn't normally show us a whole lot of emotion, good, bad, or otherwise. Is Doug Coletta, and we know what uh, we know what he's bringing to the table. Connie has gone all in on on bringing in, as you mentioned before, Alan Johnson, Brian Houston, Jason McCulloch. It's um, it's just going to be fantastic. So I mean, that, that's great to see. It's almost, it's almost like you know the LA Rams right now, right? They go all in for the Super Bowl, get all the picks, get all the players. You know, now Khalid has all those stars lined up. You know, I'm not saying this is his last hurrah, but it's certainly his best chance in a number of years to do it. And Connie was at the test, and Connie was, uh, they let him drive the golf cart, which he's not done in a while. And so <laughs> he had a prime viewing spot for one of Robert Height's runs, which was um, inside the wall in the other lane. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? There wasn't a single soul in the drag strip that was going to walk up and tell him to move that thing, and he was fine. Right. <laughs> and everything went okay. <laughs> Phil Burgess, thank you very much for taking some time, man. I look forward to seeing you at uh, the Winter Nationals, and I know that all of us are um, kind of just looking at this almost in awe of what we could and probably should see out there in Pomona. Yeah, I can't wait. I, I think it'll go, you know, continue on after Pomona. You know, Phoenix is, is the very next weekend, Gainesville a couple weekends after that. It's just going to go faster than we think, and it's going to be you know, every every stop is going to be an interesting stop for you know being back at Phoenix after not having been there the last couple of years. Gainesville is always a massive race. It, it's just going to be so great and so interesting to follow all these storylines that, that we've just been talking about and the other ones that will, will develop over the course of the season. Yeah, that's a fact. And Phoenix, I went and looked on the NHRA site uh, Saturday morning. I was sitting in the tower waiting for cars, and uh, there's already like three or four sections of the grandstands you can't even buy tickets for anymore. So yeah, it's the places. The place is going to be a zoo, and it should be. There, It's going to be a zoo there, Seattle, Virginia, those places, as you mentioned, we haven't been. Uh, it's going to be great to get back to all of them. So, Phil, thank you very much, and I'll see you in a couple days. Thank you, Brian. So we are over and out officially with the offseason. That ends it for the NHRA Insider Podcast. 
portion of the offseason anyway. The next time I'll be speaking to you, it'll be about the results of the Lucas Oil NHRA Winter Nationals presented by Protect the Harvest at Auto Club Raceway Pomona. Make sure you go to NHRA.com to snag your tickets. And if you're not going to snag your tickets, make sure you snag us on FS1. Qualifying show at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern on Friday night. Saturday morning qualifying will, final qualifying will be aired. And then Sunday evening, our final round elimination show will kick off with a great open and it will show the drama that will be this 2022 NHRA Camping World Drag Racing season from end to end. All your favorite folks are back. Tony Pedregon, myself in the booth. We'll have Amanda Busick and Bruno with us this weekend. Jamie Howell will join us when we get to Phoenix the following weekend. So that's it for me. I am going to be uh, yelling at you through the PA system at Auto Club Raceway Pomona in the next couple of days. Hope to see you there, and if not, I hope to see you on FS1. As always, thanks for listening to the NHRA Insider Podcast. I'm Brian Loans, and I'll see you next week.